We've been working our way through the book of Acts on Sunday afternoons, and we have made it now to chapter 17. So that means that we are following Paul on his second missionary journey, which began right at the end of chapter 15 with a disagreement with his former traveling companion, Barnabas. Paul decided to take Silas with him, and on that journey, we saw him also pick up Timothy in chapter 16. And so far, we've seen him go to Derby, Lystra, and Iconium in South Galatia, before being redirected by the Spirit to Macedonia instead of Asia. And that's how he ended up in Philippi. And in chapter 16, we ended that chapter leaving, leaving Philippi. So now we'll pick up with the next three stops on the journey. And chapter 17 will tell us about Paul's experiences at Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. And so we will take each one of those stops a section at a time. So let's begin by reading about Thessalonica here in chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, as you can see on the map here, Thessalonica was another city in the region of Macedonia. It was actually the chief city and the capital city. And it was about 100 miles from Philippi, where Paul set off from. And while we noted that Philippi didn't seem to have enough Jews to warrant having a synagogue, as we've just read, Thessalonica apparently had a very strong Jewish presence. And so when Paul goes there, he goes to the synagogue first, as he normally does. You might also notice the uh, pronoun shift at the beginning of this chapter. Um, the, the, the we language in Philippi has now changed to they again. It says in verse 1, they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica. And so that indicates to us that the author, Luke, is not with them at this point. But we notice that Paul is only here for a short time. It says that he reasoned in the synagogue for three Sabbath days. And I don't think that means that he was only there for three weeks. Um, some of the things that you read about in First and Second Thessalonians would indicate that it was a little bit longer than that. But it probably wasn't a whole lot longer and when he writes to the Thessalonians, he talks about how he was torn away from them. And this is where we read about that happening. 
Now, I want you to focus, though, on how he approaches the people here in Thessalonica at the synagogue. In verses 2 and 3, it talks about how he reasoned with them from the scriptures. How he explained and proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Paul took the time to reason with people. And I've got to say, that is a lot harder than just, you know, hitting them over the head with what you know to be true. It's a lot easier to just sort of blast people with information. It's a lot harder to listen to them so that we know how to respond and and to speak in ways that are convincing. Paul had a message that he wanted to convince people of. But in order to do that, he had to genuinely engage with them. He had to listen to them. And he had to speak to the questions and the views that they had. It's easy to just regurgitate or parrot back things that we might have heard before. But it's a lot more effective to reason with people, to understand their perspectives and have a rational conversation. And so Paul is very tactful here, but he doesn't compromise the truth in any way. In fact, what he's doing is he's showing them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Do you think you could do that? If you had access to the scriptures that Paul had access to, which would be the Old Testament, do you think that you could use them to prove that Jesus is the Christ? You know, I think it helps us to understand the importance of studying the Old Testament. What we have in the Old Testament is a clear picture of Jesus. We have to be able to see it. And the more that we study it, the more that we see it. And the more clearly and the more angles that we can appreciate Jesus from. And the more convincing that we can be when we talk to others about who he is. In verses 4 and 5, it talks about the response there. It says in verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Uh, That would be the crowd that Paul would write to in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. The church would be made up of some of these people. But in verse 5, it says the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. So the Jews here in Thessalonica take a page out of their cousin's playbook. If you remember back on the first missionary journey in Iconium, it was the Jews that got really upset and they stirred up a mob and ran Paul out of town. And a similar thing happens here on the second journey in Thessalonica. And there's lots we could say about all of this, but one thing this helps us to understand is Paul's perspective when he writes 1 Thessalonians. As I mentioned earlier, he says in 1 Thessalonians 1, in verse 17, we were torn away from you, brothers. That's what Paul was talking about. Here we read about these brand new converts who are going to have to make do without Paul very suddenly. And if you could just sort of put yourself in their position, that would be a very challenging situation to be in. That would be very disturbing that right after Paul comes in and you decide to give your life to Christ, that Paul gets swept out of town and then you're just sort of on your own to find out where your faith really is. And so Paul was very concerned about them when he wrote 1 Thessalonians. 
But he was also very uh, encouraged by the strength and the stability that they had. But you might also notice the nonsensical behavior of rage here. We mentioned that it's the Jews who get upset and they kind of derail the success that's happening in Thessalonica. And because they can't find Paul, they drag Jason and some of the other brothers before the authorities. On the surface, that doesn't really make sense. And even under the surface, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But this is how people will often react when they are filled with rage. They don't act in ways that are rational. They behave in ways that are illogical. But finally, I want us to notice what Paul and his companions are being accused of here. In verse 6, when they drag Jason and the brothers before the authorities, the accusation is, these men have turned the world upside down. And in verse 7, they are saying that there is another king, Jesus. Well, isn't that exactly what Paul had done? Isn't that exactly the message that Paul had been preaching? Now, I don't want to give these guys too much credit. I don't think they understand the truth of what they're saying. They're accusing Paul of preaching a message that is treasonous, saying that there's another king and you should defect from Caesar to serve Jesus. And they're saying that Paul has created disorder, but the reality is when the world is upside down, the gospel sets things back as they should be. And so when they say that these men have turned the world upside down, well, the reality is the world was upside down. The world is upside down. The gospel sets things in the order that it should be. And Paul's message is not that Jesus is going to overthrow Caesar and rule the Roman Empire. It's much bigger than that. Jesus is the king of kings, and he will overthrow Satan and rule the universe. And so with things coming to a head in Thessalonica, the journey continues in verse 10 on to the next place. And so let's pick up here now in verse 10. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily, to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Berea is now the third significant stop in Macedonia. First was Philippi in chapter 16. Second is Thessalonica in chapter 17. And now third is Berea right here. And Berea was a very old city. It was situated about 50 miles southwest of Thessalonica. And since there was a synagogue there, that's where Paul chooses to begin his work. But this time, we notice that the reception is much better than it was in Thessalonica. And verse 11 is a very powerful verse. It describes those people as being more noble than those in Thessalonica. It says that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things 
were so. The Bereans really are an excellent example to us. You might notice sometimes that the word Berean is used as a virtuous term in many different Christian applications. Uh, Sometimes you might drive down the road and notice a church that has a sign that says Berean Church. Or there's actually a study Bible out there called the Berean Study Bible. And all of those are allusions to these people that we're reading about right here. And it's in recognition of their diligence in studying the scriptures and understanding the will of God and being eager to know and apply the truth to their lives. It says that they received the word with all eagerness. But it didn't stop there. It also says that they examined the scriptures daily to see if what they heard was true. You notice that they were eager and careful. Sometimes I think we tend to think that you have to be one or the other. You have to be very zealous and eager and open-minded, or you have to be very careful and deliberate about what you believe and hold to. But the Bereans show us how to do both. They were zealous to hear a message. They listened to the preaching, but they compared it to God's word. And when they determined it to be true, they accepted it and they applied it. So verse 12 tells us that many of them therefore believed. You know, this section just about teaches itself. I don't know how much more I need to say about the Bereans to help us to understand how to apply this example But this is exactly how we ought to engage with any teaching that we hear. And every single one of us has the ability to do what the Bereans did. When we hear a message, we don't just have to accept it as being true because somebody told us it was true. Instead, we ought to compare it to the scriptures. And that'll tell us whether we ought to believe it or not. I get a little nervous sometimes when people are too open-minded. It's good for us to be open-minded. It's good for us to have the humility to know that we might be wrong and we need to listen to what somebody else is saying, but we also don't need to be so open-minded that we're gullible. And when somebody comes to me and says, you know, hey, I was listening to what you were saying, whether it was in a sermon or in a private study, And they say, I didn't really understand it. Can you explain it to me better? Or even when somebody comes to me and says, hey, I heard what you were saying, and I'm not sure that I agree with it. I like that. I really appreciate that. Because it gives us an opportunity to say, well, let's go back to God's word. Let's open it up. Let's see what it says. Let's discuss it with each other. I don't want you to believe it just because I said it. I don't want you to believe what somebody else says just because they said it. All that matters is what the Word of God has told us. And so, things go well in Berea until the Jews from Thessalonica show up. We noted that they kind of took a page out of their cousin's playbook from Iconium. Remember on the first journey, the Jews in Iconium stirred up a mob and ran Paul out of town, but they didn't stop there. When Paul went on to Lystra and to Derbe, they followed him. And the same thing happens here. These Jews that stirred people up in Thessalonica follow him to Berea, and they get the crowd stirred up here as well. And that's what leads the brothers to send Paul on his way 
while Paul or while Silas and Timothy stay behind. And so as Paul is sent off on his way by himself, that's how he ends up in Athens, as we'll read about in these next few verses. So let's go ahead and read verses 16 through 21. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange thing to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Athens is a very well-known city in the region of Achaia, uh, still a very well-known and famous city. It had a reputation for being a city of learning. It was the cultural and intellectual center of the Greek world. And as such, it was very well decorated with idols, with idols to various pagan deities. And that is what provokes Paul's spirit within him while he wanders the streets. It was said that there were more statues of the gods in Athens than in all the rest of Greece put together, and that in Athens it was easier to meet a god than a man. I read that uh, from somebody. And so that just gives you an idea of how prolific the idols were in this place. And so Paul sees this as an opportunity. He begins to reason with people. And again, that's the word that's used in verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue. He starts in the synagogue with the Jews, and then from there he moves to the marketplace where he encounters people that are just going about their business during the day. But from the marketplace, he ends up going to the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, in verse 19. But what we see Paul doing is looking for people who are willing to have an honest conversation about God. He's looking for people who are wanting to consider what impact God has on their lives, who are willing to stop and to talk. And he encounters all kinds of different people. The text here indicates in verse 18 that he encountered Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. I know that I, I won't be able to do those philosophies justice um, in just a moment, but I will give you sort of a nutshell version of those philosophies. Epicureans sought pleasure as the greatest pursuit in life. They believed the absence of fear and suffering was the highest good. They also rejected organized religion because they believed that the gods took no interest in human affairs and that the gods had no interest in any kind of judgment in the afterlife. Stoics were pantheists who believed that God is in everything, and everything is in God. And so as such, they placed great emphasis on living in harmony with nature, 
They stressed individual self-sufficiency and rationalism, and they were also fatalistic. And I'll just say, both of these philosophies are still very present in our world today. There are a lot of people who follow either Epicurean or Stoic philosophy, whether or not they say it out loud or recognize it. But these people give Paul a chance to share his intriguing ideas about Jesus and the resurrection. And this is just sort of a side point, but in verse 18, I think it's really interesting what they're saying about him. You know, there are some who just think that he's a babbler, but then other people are saying, well, let's hear about these deities. Let's hear about these gods. It seems like Jesus, or it seems like Paul is talking about Jesus and the resurrection, almost as if they're two gods that he's proclaiming. Seems to me like they don't really have much of an understanding, but they are willing to give Paul an audience. And so they invite him to the Areopagus, or Mars Hill. And this word can be used in two different ways. It can refer to the hill itself on which the council conducted its business, or it can refer to the council, which was a group of about 30 citizens who would meet there to exchange philosophical ideas and converse with one another. And so the question is, does Luke refer to the people or to the place? It's hard to say for sure, but I lean towards the people uh, because in verse 22, it says that Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. Typically, we talk about standing in the midst of people, not in the midst of a hill. It doesn't really matter one way or the other. But verse 21 might be the most damning verse in this whole chapter. It says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This was the Athenians' problem. They were really interested in hearing something new, but they didn't have much interest in hearing something true. All they wanted was the flavor of the week. All they wanted was, you know, the clickbait kind of ideas that everybody was chattering about. But there was no depth. There was no conviction. There was no genuine search for truth to build their lives on. They just wanted to hear new ideas. Do you know people like that? People who are always excited about some new idea that they've heard, some new idea that somebody has shared with them. They never really develop any strong convictions, but they're just being tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, like Ephesians 4 and verse 14 warns us. That's a terrible place to be. If we're constantly just being pulled aside by whatever the latest thing is that we've heard, then there's no firm foundation to build on. We can't grow, we can't mature, unless we put down some roots and decide on the things that we know to be true. I had a study with a group of guys for about a year. Uh, a couple of you went with me to that study on Friday mornings. But these were people that were in various churches that were more mainstream, Calvinistic, and eventually, I came to the conclusion that this was pretty much where they were. And it was really sad because I, I really did enjoy studying with them. I had really uh, intriguing conversations. It was very stimulating. We reasoned with each other about the Word of God and how we should apply it. But it never would come to anything. 
And even when I felt like I had answered every response biblically, there was never any interest to actually change their beliefs or to act on them. See, we've got to be interested in seeking the truth and finding it. Not people who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. I like how Proverbs 23 and verse 23 tells us, buy the truth and do not sell it. That needs to be our mentality. That when we find what is true, when we can see what God's word says, it doesn't matter what anybody else teaches. It doesn't matter what anybody else believes. It doesn't matter what the next idea is that we hear. When something is true, it's always true. And we can remember that. So we need to be interested in finding what is true, not simply what's new. And so with that, let's look at Paul's sermon to this group of people at the Areopagus. That's verses 22 through 31. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, I know that we don't really have time to unpack everything in this sermon, but I do want to notice a few highlights in the way that Paul reasons with the people gathered here. And first of all, I want us to notice that Paul starts where they are. I think that Paul's being sincere in verse 22 when he says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. I think Paul appreciates that these people have some inclination towards recognizing the divine, some desire to honor deity. And so Paul says we're on the same page there. So let's start there. You acknowledge that there is a God that you don't know. And I'm here to tell you about him. And here is where Paul really challenges their understanding of the gods. 
Because Paul's message is unapologetically that this God who I preach to you is the one God, the only God, the creator and the ruler of everything that you see around you. See, these Greeks would have believed in many gods who were responsible for individual aspects of creation. A god of the sun and a god of the sea and a god of, you know, individual aspects like that. But Paul is saying that there is one God who rules it all. But I want us to notice, too, what Paul says about this God. In verse 24, he says, This is the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul is saying that this God is greater than you can possibly imagine. He's a God that transcends the need for temples because the whole world is his. He's a God that needs nothing from you. We can't give him anything that he needs. But he goes on to say in verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Though God needs nothing from us, he wants us. And that's actually what makes him so compelling. He is the almighty king of the universe, but he desires for us to seek him, to feel our way towards him and to find him. And he's made himself findable. He's made himself knowable. And Paul says he's closer than you think. You know, when you start to think about this idea Please don't let your familiarity with this rob you of the wonder. We can connect to the infinitely amazing, infinitely powerful king of the universe. And that's what he wants. And to support all of these points, Paul quotes from some of their own poets. And you might notice here that when Paul speaks to a Jewish audience, he often talks about Jewish Old Testament history. But when Paul speaks to this crowd of Greeks, he uses their own poets to show them the truth of who God is. The first quote comes from the Cretan poet Epimenides. The second can be attributed to the Cilician poet Aratus. But his point is that deep down, you know intuitively what the gospel supports as truth. I think that's a good thing for us to observe. That so many times we see the errors of the people around us. We understand that the things that they believe to be true are not true. And what we fail to see is that there's a deep longing within them for what the gospel actually fulfills. That oftentimes people are close to the truth even if they haven't found it. And all we need to do is show them that all of the answers they're looking for are found in the truth of the gospel. But Paul's point is that there is a God who made us, and our life comes from him. 
And so verse 29 is the conclusion. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now, this is a really logical argument. If we believe that we were made by God, why would we think that the gods could be made by us? In fact, the creator is always greater than the creation. You know, if you were to go home and draw a picture of a person, you could practice and practice and practice and practice, and you might end up with a very, very realistic picture of a person, but it'll never be as uh, complete as you are. The creator is always greater than the creation. And so if we believe that we were made by God, we shouldn't think that gods can be made by us. If God made us, he must be greater than we are. And the idols that we create will always be less than us, and in fact, much less than the God who made us. And so it's with that that Paul drives the sermon to application. He says in verse 30, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's saying, you might not have known what God required of you before, but you know now. You know, sometimes when you talk to people about the gospel, or you try to talk to people about what God expects of us, a lot of times people's response is to say, well, what about these people somewhere else? What about the uncontacted tribes that are, you know, roaming in South America? What about the people who lived, you know, 5,000 years ago. What about this person? What about that person? I'm just going to say, I don't know how to sort all that stuff out. I believe God's not going to make any mistakes. But you know what you need to do. And if you know what you need to do, you have no excuse. And so Paul says, you need to repent. In verse 31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So let's look at the response in these last few verses of the chapter. Verse 32 says, Now when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. It's sort of an uh, anticlimactic conclusion in Athens. You know, it just seems like they listened to him and then they got tired of listening to him. And I just sort of imagine the crowd slowly dispersing until there's just like a couple of people left. And so he looks at Dionysius and Damaris and he's like, okay, I'm glad. I'm glad it made sense to somebody. But, you know, we've noticed how over and over again, Paul has been run out of town. Over and over again, his message has created this opposition in people's hearts where they've been passionately opposed to what he had to say. They've conspired against him to put him to death, and he's had to flee for his life. That's not the end of the story in Athens. People just sort of walk away, and Paul just sort of casually moves on. It's a picture of apathy. It's a picture of people who are just not even entertaining the message 
in any kind of convicting way. And so the moment that Paul challenged them to take accountability, that was the moment that they decided to stop listening. Let's be sure that we're not like that. Let's be sure that we don't just approach Bible study in a way that's merely academic or merely philosophical. Let's not be people who just have robust conversations and then walk away unchanged. Let's be people who are seeking the truth. Let's be people who want to apply it to our lives. Let's be people who want to understand what God wants from us so that we can do it. The Athenians largely did not understand the gravity of the conversation they were having. And so with all of that being said, let's draw some conclusions, and then the lesson will be yours this afternoon. Number one, apathy for the truth is just as bad as hatred for it. It's interesting to recognize the contrast in reactions between Athens and Thessalonica. On the surface, it seems like totally opposite reactions. In Thessalonica, you've got people that are so upset that they want to kill Paul because of the message that he speaks. And in Athens, you've got people that just are so apathetic that they just sort of walk away. But the reality is both responses were just as disastrous. In some ways, they made opposite mistakes. The Jews in Thessalonica got jealous and stirred up a mob. The Greeks in Athens got tired of it and walked away. But neither one of them let the truth have an impact on their lives. Resisting the truth and ignoring the truth are equally tragic for our souls. Second conclusion from this chapter is that we have the power to recognize the truth by examining the scriptures. Again, the Bereans' example is so empowering in verse 11. It talks about how they were eager to receive the word, but they also examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You know, we can do that. You and I have the ability to do that. God has given us the ability to do that. That's why he's given us the minds that we have and his word to be able to read and understand. We can examine it and come to the right conclusions about the truth. I always smile a little bit when somebody asks me, what does the Church of Christ teach about whatever? That's a question that I get from time to time. Well, what does the Church of Christ teach about this? What does the Church of Christ teach about that? And I always say, who cares? (laughs) Who cares? The question we ought to be asking is, what does the Bible teach about this? What is it that the Word of God tells us about your question? And the minute that we start to defend our beliefs and our practices on the basis of what we've always heard or what we've always done, that's the minute that we start to drift away from the truth. And so we need to be able to say, this is the truth because this is what is taught in the scriptures. And then the third conclusion that I see from this chapter is this powerful realization that God wants us even though he doesn't need us. That's actually what makes his love so amazing. If God depended on us, then he wouldn't really be God. 
And in fact, his love would be sort of a manipulative kind of thing. But his love is pure because he doesn't need us. Anytime we start to get the idea that God relies on us or that God depends on us, we ought to recognize that as pride. He doesn't need us. We need him. But if he didn't want us, we would have no hope at all. And this is the beauty of the gospel. That the high king of heaven desires a relationship with us as weak and as sinful as we are. He wants us to seek our way toward him, to feel our way towards him, and to find him because he has made himself not far from each one of us. God wants to save us, and he wants to change us into people who resemble him. And that's the invitation that I'll leave you with this afternoon. That as we see this convicting message of the gospel that Paul preaches from one place to another, he constantly adapts it to his audience to reason with them and to appeal to them. But consistently the message is this, that you have a responsibility to obey Jesus. He is the Son of God. He's risen from the dead. And that in him you can have hope of eternal life. And the same invitation that Paul left people with back in the first century is the invitation that we have to reconcile today. Have we been obedient? Have we responded to the invitation of Jesus Christ? There might be somebody here who needs to do something in order to make your life right with God, whether you have not yet become a Christian or whether there's some repentance that's necessary or whether you just want to share some prayer request. You have an opportunity to do that while we stand together and while we sing.